0: The teaching text today comes from Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these you did not do for me, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. the word of the Lord
1: well, good week to be a visitor, I guess eternal punishment this is uh, if you just if you 're just hand picking. Uh, you know, sermon texts, you know, and, and you, you can you know, pick the easy ones. You probably don't hit this one. Uh, it's, it, it's tough. It's tough on multiple levels, but we're going to wade through it together, and I think, I think we can do it. Um, I, I had a bonding moment with, with my son this week that happened in, in an unexpected way. Uh, in an evening, I was out of the house. He, uh, around bedtime, had just had a very intense session of thinking about eternity, which uh, I think for any of us can be really, really a challenging idea. Like no matter what, good or bad, something just going on forever, it puts a strain on our our, imagina- our on our imagination. And uh, so, yeah, he just was, uh, you know, f- turning over that concept in his mind over and over again about existing, existing forever. Not necessarily thinking about good or bad. Just like something that doesn't end is really hard to get your mind around. Uh, and he got nervous, he, he got so nervous that he couldn't sleep, uh, and he, he began to feel sick. And uh, I came home, and by that time, he was, you know, he was in his bed, but the light was on, and, you know, that was the first time I can remember in his 11 years where he wanted to sleep, you know, with the lights on, which, he's got two other siblings in there, so we don't usually allow that, but um, this this night is sort of like your compassion just goes out, you know, for, for your child, And and I was struck, as soon as my wife told me about this, I was struck thinking about myself. I don't know if it was exactly 11 or when, but I remember losing sleep over that idea. I remember losing sleep over what on earth, you know, like here I am just like I've woken up in this world. Like I didn't choose to be born. Here I am. I exist. And somehow no matter like it goes on, right? It goes on for however long my days alive last, And then now people are telling me it goes on after that and it can go on in good ways and bad ways. And this is so, so intense. Um, And I, I, the bonding moment came when I tried to, I read from him from like a journal entry of my own fear at that time of like, um, or reflecting upon that time. I didn't journal much as an 11 year old, just to be honest. I am (laughs) a professional Christian, but not that great. Um, And we just, I just like, man, I know, and this is like one of the most beautiful gifts we can give one another as human beings. I know exactly what that's like. I know exactly what that feels like. Here, let me describe for you what it felt like for me to lose sleep over that, over that idea. And um, and then this teaching is slated for, for this week. And I just wanna be honest, whatever you think about, you know, pastors or your vision of church, like I wanted to bail on this, this teaching text, all the way up to last night. I was like, let's just, man, there's a supplemental text that I was gonna mention late, later in the sermon. Let's just make that the main one and forget all this stuff because it's, it's so hard. And I wanna tell you right right up front, like, I'm still not sure we're gonna handle it well. So, great. And you're like, if you wanna bail now, they're doing, you can go score some tests across the way in the gym. Um, Bagel World is right over here. They make a, a wonderful breakfast. Um, but Jesus, amongst all the other things he was, and if we're going to be a community centered around Jesus, then we have to contend with the fullness of who he is, not just you know me, me or someone else sort of selecting a buffet of the of the of the easiest to swallow sort of morsels about him. Whatever else Jesus was, he was an apocalyptic rabbi, which might to you seem like super cool, like uh, that that sounds like great, like some sort of Star Wars character or something. But he was he was a rabbi who 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 added to the canon of of, of teaching on what Yahweh was going to do in the world by conveying a vision of God's future. That's That's what it means for Jesus to be an apocalyptic rabbi, was that he spoke with authority about what was to come about the, the final def- destination of, of human beings, about the planet, about the story God was telling in the world, that for Jesus to be an apocalyptic rabbi and to accept him at, at, you know, at face value for all that he was means we have to contend with this to some degree, is that he spoke about future events. He spoke about future realities, even final destinations for the planet and for people, and he did so with authority. I read these apocalyptic pictures, Matthew 24, Matthew 25 are filled with them. And what I want to do as a preacher for you is soften them. So that, you're not, so that you're not why, because I don't wanna be written off as something that you've stereotyped as, as religious leader in, in, your, in your mind, or that I've stereotyped as religious leader, like gleefully pounding, you know, pounding down and talking about talking about judgment and, and resorting to an us and them mentality of like, we're the ones who've got it, and those out there are the people who don't have it, and those people are gonna receive God's judgment, and we sort of get a sense of pride and delight in that, and that's so far away from what I want the heart of our church to be, and so I read a passage like, this and what I want to do is soften it, because I still find it difficult to think about forever as an adult, as a pastor, but I stayed with it, in part because of actually how hard it is to shake if you really let the imagery of this passage sink in. It's a picture that can rattle you, and we're talking about Jesus as the resurrection and the life. We're saying that he came and claimed to be God, that he died. <laughs> A death that was significant for us thousands of years later that it can have an effect on changing our lives. And then he, he rose from the dead and walked out of the grave. And if that's all true about God, all those positive things are true about Jesus, then, then he's God. And, and, and in a sense we have to stop coming to him with a place of negotiating like this will take from you but not so much this. We have to let him rattle us from time to time. We have to be willing to, to, to be shaken at our core by what he says. And so... If you're looking for just some, you know, sunshiny day zingers, Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus teaching with an apocalyptic edge, talking about what's to come, talking about judgment, something we want to stay so far away from. This is not Jesus like meek and mild, holding lambs, California model smile. Like this, these stories have a, have a graphic edge to them because they're meant to live with you. They're meant to rattle you. Right, if you, ta- if you take the three stories just of Matthew 25, here, I'll, g- I'll give them to you. It's the story of ten virgins, a zinger, one of your favorites. It's the story of the bags of gold or the talents uh, is-, is a story of Matthew 25. And then the one that we read here, which is the separation of the sheep and the goats. The messages of those stories... Right, like this is an oversimplification, but let me give you the messages of those three stories really quickly. Like you maybe could have skipped right to this in the beginning. Here's the messages of those three stories just in this chapter. The, the, the ten virgins. Live with readiness, expectancy, and obedience to God because we don't know when our time is going to be up and when Jesus is going to come back. Live with readiness, expectancy, obedience to God because you don't know when, 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 when the time is over. Second is uh, the the talents, the the bags of gold, people given different uh, talents and abilities. Take risks of faith with the things that God has entrusted you with. Don't fearfully hide who you are and what God has given you away because it really matters significantly for now and forever. The, The third message, right? Take care of those people in need around us because our posture towards them is indicative of our place in the kingdom of God. Three summaries of three stories. And you know what? Those summaries are terrible for staying with you. Like, you will forget those sentence summaries, but if you really listen to the teachings of jesus and you're rattled by the imagery and the and the provocative nature of the of the imagery and the story is what sticks with you now that's for us we have bibles to refer back to and we can go back and remember but like in an oral culture when the majority of people jesus was talking to didn't have scriptures at home to go back and refer to the power of a vision like this the power of a parable was that the imagery stayed with you and you and it was simple enough that you could revisit it over and over again but rich enough that you could be Confronted by it, challenged by it, rattled by it over and over again. This is part of the mastery of how Jesus taught. But it doesn't... Like that's an interesting thought, but it doesn't protect us from some of the parts of this story that do rattle us, that make us uncomfortable. So I want to get into the ones that are present, the ones I see, you might see others, and I think a few of the ones that need some further explanation. So the first thing that I think, in an overarching way that, that we need to be confronted from this story is that God can't be controlled. A simple thought, maybe when you came in here you would have already agreed to that if someone asked you out front, but when it boils down to how we actually interact with God or, 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 or how we think about God, sometimes we can reduce him down into, into sort of like a cosmic life coach that does come alongside us when we feel like it's convenient and we're hoping it will give us a, you know, a pep talk for us to go out and live our vision. But this picture is of a wild God. <laughs> who can't be controlled, who is incredibly tender and loving and welcoming the children and, and all, all the things that, that are true about Jesus. But in this instance, he is Jesus' apocalyptic rabbi, and he can't be controlled. What, God can be known. God's love and presence and power and justice can be experienced. God can be called upon. He, he can be spoken to, and, and he'll speak back. He can be re- relied upon. But he cannot be controlled as one who would orbit around our sense of how things should be. That he's, he's up to things that are, that, are, that are bigger and more transcendent than that. And also smaller and more specific than that. So when Jesus teaches on future events and future places that God is going to bring the story. When he's confronting us with this reality. He's, he's saying, listen, the, the, the vision of, of, of a self-centered Self sufficient life of self expression, which we're sort of marketed to as the highest end in American life, that that that's not quite enough. (laughs) That you're dealing with reality that you can't control and a God that you can't control, and that we actually have to conform to that as opposed to trying to bend the world around us. So we've been using these three weeks after Easter to sort of mark the shifts that take place in someone's life when they invite the wildness of this Jesus and his resurrection life into, the, in, into their life. When, when, when our life intersects with Jesus and we come into union with him, what takes place in our life? And we talked last week about, or two weeks ago about the shift from death to life. Yes, there it is. That is a dramatic pause. They teach you that in seminary. Uh, and then from shame to acceptance, and this week from self to others. These, these are the ways that we're transformed when we come into relationship with this Jesus who, who can't be controlled. But sometimes when Jesus is calling us from building our life on this smaller place, maybe even a caged in place of selfishness, out into the wide pastures of being oriented around love, loving God, loving our neighbor, loving even our enemy, sometimes he has to jar us off of our comfortable place of selfishness to get us outside of ourselves and to move Move us by his spirit into a place of loving others, really. And so that's when we need God to be wild. We we need him to be an apocalyptic rabbi. We need him to have a prophetic edge. We need him to speak authoritatively about what's to come. Otherwise, we would just settle reducing Jesus down to a small, tame, comfortable Jesus that that basically we can control and that fits tidily into the American dream. This is how Dorothy, Dorothy Sayers puts it. The people who hanged Christ never to do them justice accused him of being a bore. On the contrary, they thought him too dynamic to be safe. It has been left for later generations to muffle up that shattering personality and surround him with an atmosphere of tedium. We have very efficiently paired the claws of the Lion of Judah, certified him meek and mild, and recommended him as a fitting household pet for pale curates and pious old ladies. Those who knew him, however, objected to him as a dangerous firebrand." The teaching of Jesus was confrontational. Because if you look in chapter 26, like two sentences later, this is what you read. The chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. That wasn't because he was just walking around holding lambs and saying, hey, be nice, forgive people. It's because he was with authority confronting us with the reality of our hearts, with the reality of our world, with the reality of our future. God is beyond our control. The next, the next important thing I think that we see in this, in this apocalyptic vision is that Jesus in this vision is king and fit to judge. We get different pictures of Jesus, right? We walk through Advent and we see him coming, you know, the majesty of God clothing himself in the weakness of an infant. We see Jesus, you know, as a 12-year-old getting lost from his family. We see Jesus hungry and thirsty in the wilderness. We see Jesus exhausted. We see Jesus teaching. We see Jesus in all these different situations. But when Jesus comes in this apocalyptic vision, he is the king. And he's fit to judge. This is how the vision starts. When the Son of Man comes in his glory with all his angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his left and the goats on his right. I went back and I was looking, these five shifts, death to life, shame to acceptance, self to others, consumerism to mission, striving to abiding. These are ways we've thought about discipleship at Trinity Grace for years. So this isn't the first time in a sermon I've ever mentioned self to others. And I went back and looked at the very last time we taught on this. And the passage we used was from Philippians 2. This is what I almost wanted to change it to instead of doing Matthew 25 today, because This is the vision of Jesus that we love, right? Listen to this. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Yes. That's the Jesus I want. The Jesus who emptied himself for us, who's poured himself out, who is God and yet expressed himself in this majestic humility that he he came and, and, and fully entered our story that whatever else, as we suffer, he's been in the middle of it with us. I love that part about Jesus. But actually that same passage, just a little while later, it says this. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. And gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And it, that every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. He's, he's absolutely both. And we have to have him as, as both. This is the Jesus who has demonstrated the character of God in love, in mercy, and incarnating in our story, and beauty, and the truth of God, and the way of the kingdom. But now He's also exalted to the name that is above every name, to this high place of, of authority, of power, of truth, and honor. Judgment is an uncomfortable idea to consider. That our lives, really, truly, the substance of them, are going to be evaluated. The choices and opportunities that we had in our time on earth is going to be considered. In a meaningful way before God, and there's going to be there's there's like consequence to that. But I'm so glad that the person doing the judgment is this same Jesus who came and emptied Himself as a servant, who demonstrated His extravagant love for us, who who who, who, who was willing. Ultimately, like there is a a core longing in our in our human hearts for justice to be done in the world, for things to be made right. I love NT Wright has has helped shape my understanding and thinking, and given me tremendous comfort around this idea i'll give you what he said in response to this passage in order for justice to be fully accomplished listen justice is one of the most profound longings of the human race if there is no justice then deep within ourselves we know that something is out of joint justice is hard to define and harder still to put into practice but that has never stopped human beings and society seeking it praying for it and working to find ways of doing it better And justice doesn't simply mean punishing wickedness, though that is regularly involved. It means bringing the world back into balance. Central to the Jewish and Christian traditions is the belief that this passionate longing for justice comes from the creator God himself. Jews and Christians believe that he will eventually do justice on a worldwide scale in a way that the international court could only dream of. God's judgment will be seen to be just and it will put the world to rights. The heading we're considering right now is Jesus is king and fit to judge. There's no one else as qualified. No one else who carries the level of compassion. No one else who carries the level of wisdom. No one else who carries the level of, 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 of self-giving love and salvation. Only Jesus is able ultimately to accomplish this type of justice. Now he can accomplish it and does accomplish it through his the body of Christ, in in many ways. We get many glimpses of justice being done through through human beings, through believers and non-believers in the world, God working in the the middle of our story, but ultimately like final cosmic, ultimate worldwide scale justice, only Jesus can bring that. That's why the warnings about us making final determinations on someone's story and life are so strong. We're not ready or equipped to do that. The, let's leave room for God to still move. Let's re- leave room for God to still be at work and in our lives as much as any, right? We're not, we're not equipped in the way Jesus is to be judge. So let's look at what happens in this vision. There is an inheritance. The king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. The inheritance is incredible. it should stir our imaginations. It should uh, you know s- stir up hope w- within us. There is a kingdom that we, we that is prepared for for since the creation of the world, this is, this, is, this is a people with their God. This is an expression of society that is burned in the heart of God from the very beginning. That he, It says, says earlier in the Gospel that it is, it is his pleasure to give us the kingdom. It is his pleasure to make us into the type of people that operate and work with the love of God flowing in our lives that we move out to take care of people in the way God moves out to take care of people. And that there is a beautiful inheritance present now, a quality of eternal life that takes place now and that goes on forever as a response to that. There's a couple of important things to note. You got this, right? This is right on the surface. But Jesus connects their invitation into this inheritance, into the kingdom, to how they respond to, the, to these needs, right? The specific needs. Hungry, you fed me. Thirsty, you gave me drink; Strangers, you invited me in. Needed clothes, you clothed me. You were sick, you looked after me. You were in prison, you visited me. But the, the next thing is really important. The invitation into that inheritance is connected to how they take care of the needs of the least of these. And then the next thing is really important because the people receiving this inheritance are surprised. And they say, wait, what? In the message, they say, wait, what? In this version, they say, when did we do this? When did we see, when do we, when do we see these? These people are, are, are receiving this inheritance. They're surprised. And, and what does Jesus say? When you did it for the least of these, you did it for me. Whatever this group is, Jesus is so fully identifying with these people whose needs are being met that he's saying, when you met the needs of these people, you met my needs. Inheritance is powerful, it's, it's, it's present since the creation of the world, it is, it is a, a vision of society that's been burning in the, heart of, the God, heart of God forever, and it's connected to meeting the needs of these least of these in this, in this instance, that's very important. There's not just an inheritance though, there's also a curse. And he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or in sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did, not do for, the, for one of the least of these you did not do for me, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. As powerful, as beautiful, as imagination-stirring, as the inheritance is, the curse is, is honestly just that awful. It's too much, honestly, to really consider for long. It's, 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 it's hard to fathom, but the vision forces us to confront it. It seems to say this. There are spiritual laws in the world that are as true as our physical laws, and sticking your head in the sand of unbelief does not make those spiritual laws cease to exist. They continue to exist in the same way that ceasing to believe in gravity wouldn't mean you wouldn't fall if you jumped off a building, right? Our power of belief, right? This is one of the mysteries of, of Christianity. In some senses, your faith can't make something happen. In your faith doesn't make God exist, And your unbelief in God doesn't make him cease to exist, right? There is a a reality and we're confronting it. And Jesus is saying there are spiritual laws in the world that even if we choose not to believe them, they're they're still present. But what gets me, among other things in this story, is that those who are told to depart are also surprised. They ask the same question, when do we see you like this? You can almost, you almost hear it in their response. Jesus, if we had seen you in any of these conditions, we would have done more. We would have absolutely helped. But again, Jesus fully identifies with the least of these. And he says, when you fail to help them in their time of need, you fail to help me. When you fail to receive them, you fail to receive me. So the question I'm asking at this point, and I hope you're asking too, is who are the least of these because it's really important and this is where it gets hard also there's two primary interpretations uh, of who the least of these are i'm going to give you both of them the first one i'm going to give you is the more popular level version that people read this this, this vision now and, the, and and they most often jump to uh, it's it's not as old as the as the more traditional view of interpreting this this vision. Um, The second one I'm going to mention has actually more weight of history behind it, though it is surprising to us on some level if we've only been reading it with the popular interpretation in our mind. And if you don't know what I'm talking about yet, that's fine because we haven't gotten into it, okay? Great. The first interpretation of who the least of these are is simply the poor. Those who are in need in the regards that are described In the passage, the poor and needy, anyone who we might find needing food or shelter, needing welcome, needing hospitality, attention, and care. Right? The popular interpretation of this of of the least of these makes sense when we hear Mother Teresa, right, working amongst the poorest of the poor in Calcutta, saying, "We don't serve the poor because they're like Jesus. We serve the poor because they are Jesus." All right. That that's rooted out of this idea that the least of these that Jesus is talking about in this vision are just anyone that we would encounter with need. And the fact of the matter is, here's what we need to, to, to concede. If you took this teaching in Matthew 25 out of the New Testament, there's still an overwhelming ethic that followers of Jesus should take care of the poor and needy. Actually, the intensity with which Jesus makes the point in this in this. It's like you've already already said this so many other times. To take care of the poor and needy is part of our responsibility as followers of Jesus. And it's what sort of begins to, to, to cause a problem with that first interpretation of who the least of these are being what's being referred to here. Does that make sense? If it doesn't, that's fine. I told you it was hard and I told you we might not get it. This would have been assumed in Jesus' teaching up to this point. Like to give an apocalyptic vision that we should care for people who come into our, our, our sphere and are in need, that we should be moved towards them and compassionate and, and, and give them food and give them shelter and give them hospitality. That's like an assumption in the ministry of Jesus so it, it is true, but it, it it might not be the clearest understanding of who the least of these are in this instance here 's a couple of problems with reading the least of these just as the poor and needy one it, it it might seem to introduce a criteria for salvation that would be inconsistent with the rest of the new testament a tra- track with with me here we 're doing theology together, and I know you feel it right i, 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 I don't want to overstate this because as i've said uh, uh, Already, the New Testament clearly teaches that we are we are to care for the poor as followers of Jesus. If we're not willing or active to show love and care for the poor and, and that, that are experiencing these types of needs, we should have a level of concern that the heart and life of Jesus is not present in us, that we're not united to Him. If we have no movement of compassion towards those in need, we should ask ourselves: are we in union with Jesus? But salvation in Jesus is repeatedly offered as an act of grace based on what Jesus has done, his life, death, and resurrection, and not on a scorecard of our behavior. That's really important, right? Because if you're, if you're like me, right, you practically, you move, through the, you move through the city, and you're like, how, just in my one commute, right, I run into more need than I could possibly respond to. So what do I do? How, how do I respond? And that's a, that's a question followers of Jesus need to be wrestling with. We're not off the hook for that because salvation is, is based on grace. If that grace is taken hold of our heart, then we need to be asking ourselves, stirring our imagination, linking arms as a community, sharing our resources, pouring out. When, when God gives us specific opportunities and we're, we're moved by the Spirit, we should be responding profoundly in generosity to needs around us, but that's not the basis of our salvation. It's, it's, we have not shifted into the, Jesus isn't with this, this vision shifting us into an entirely works-based vision of salvation. Does that, that sense? We're tracking together. I see at least two people have nodded, so I'm going to keep going. A second problem with the interpretation that the least of these are just the poor and needy is the phrase that Jesus puts at the end when he mentions it the first time. He says, the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did to the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. The least of these brothers and sisters of mine. Whoever the least of these are, Jesus is calling them brothers and sisters. And though Jesus does deeply relate to the poor in general, those who are his brothers and sisters, according to what he says earlier in the gospels, are those who do the will of his father. It is his disciples who are his brothers and sisters. Now earlier, there's a clue that helps us with interpretation here. Earlier in Matthew 10, Jesus sends out the disciples on a mission of love to to go and proclaim the gospel, the message of the kingdom, to pray for healing, to to do the works that Jesus was doing himself. He sends them out to do it. And what happens is they face the exact needs that are mentioned in Matthew 25. They, They face those needs in Matthew 10. And Jesus tells them when they're going out these words. Anyone who welcomes you, this is from Matthew 10. Anyone who welcomes you welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. So we can begin to see that there is some level of a problem with just thinking of the least of these as the poor in general, but specifically... The interpretation here and the, and the weight of eternal cosmic consequences associated with it seems to, 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 to lend that this is talking about the people that Jesus has fully identified himself with so much so that to reject them and their message is actually to reject Jesus. And now we're closer to the overall message of what the gospel is in the rest of the New Testament. That yes, to reject Jesus does have these profound forever consequences. But I want to say this is hard for us, and it's hard for us, especially if we've been hearing and thinking about the interpretation of the least of these just as generally the poor, for a couple of reasons. Most of us are not living in the life circumstances and conditions of the first century disciples who had left their livelihoods and families to follow Jesus. Jesus. We're not dependent in the same way those disciples were on the hospitality and kindness and provision of food and generosity from other people. We're not going out in the same way, literally risking our lives. And I'm not coming down on us in a condemning way. We are in the place that we are, and there's a way for us to follow Jesus in the midst of our real circumstances here. But it's why it makes it hard. It it's so much easier to hear that story as here we are as the relatively wealthy and wealthy and comfortable, and even if it's challenging to know, we need to reach out to this other class of people who are the poor, who are the least of these and care for them. But Jesus is saying, "You are the least of these. He's moving us into that category. <laughs> He's saying, my disciples become the least of these. My disciples become those who have let go of their stake in the world in a fundamental way, and they're now relying upon grace and provision and hospitality and care in a way that they wouldn't if they were just trying to live out of their own self-sufficiency. And that's where the interpretation of this passage sort of hangs and also spears us. Jesus is saying, I have fully identified with my disciples. That is a message of the gospel, that we give him all that we have, our sin, death, brokenness, fear, anxiety, depression, all of that, and he gives us life and salvation and mercy and and, and he's made us in his image, and he longs to do that, and he, and he loves us. But that, that does transfer from being our own to being his. My life is now not my own. I have died with Christ and raised to walk in newness of life. So I'm united to him, and he's identifying himself with the least of these. So he's identifying you and I as the least of these. Because we have so much comfort in our time and place in the world, it can be hard to hear That we are the least of these. But it would have been a massive comfort to the disciples who were hearing it at the time. And it is a massive comfort to many followers of Jesus still around the world today. These disciples had let go of the self-oriented life to, to carry the love and message of Jesus. They would be filled with his spirit. To reject them was to reject Jesus. And that has implications. So. We're going to move to the table in just a minute. I mentioned this was challenging when I got up here. We are called, hear me say this, we are called to serve and love the poor as followers of Jesus. But our our salvation is not based on a righteousness scorecard or religious activity, but it is based on union to Jesus. That's, that's crucially important. I want to read you... Uh, Pastor Andy, Andy Horvath commenting on this. I think, it's, I think it's helpful. I think it helps sum up what I've been trying to get at. These passages in Matthew are not about the nature of the gospel, but about response to the gospel. The gospel is holistic, addressing every area of life. Thus, our response involves membership in a community of self-sacrificial service, not just cognitive assent to an otherworldly claim. Following Jesus has both mental and physical dimensions, assent and obedience. Perhaps... A deeper humility and vulnerability should be a part of our Christian witness. After all, it is not them out there who are the least of these, we are. Perhaps we should start to live to live in that way. Jesus picture of his followers in this passage was not first one of, of people who were, who were living in wealthy self-sufficiency, but those who had given all to follow him and could take comfort in the fact that he was fully identifying with them. Let that sink into our hearts. He was fully identifying with them. And Jesus, when he comes into union with you and I, it is utterly by grace. It is a free gift. And yet it does invite us to die to ourselves. And even if we may remain in some senses in, in the same circumstances and position, there is a dispossessing of what we have that we relinquish it to God and say, my life really isn't my own. My time really isn't my own. My money really isn't my own. My, even my, my energy isn't really my own. It is given over to God. And I'm trusting that he's going to supply those fundamental needs of my life in his way. This is a challenging call from self to others to trusting and loving God in such a way that we could trust and love our neighbors generously. We should be rattled by this picture. We we are called out of simply seeking personal peace and affluence on our own terms and called into this life of self-sacrificial love. It doesn't negate, right? like I said what we've already said, moving from death to life to be reborn is a spiritual act of grace to move from shame to acceptance to reaffirm our identity as the beloved sons and daughters of God who haven't done anything to deserve it and are utterly free and yet now we're called to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, to lay down our lives and to identify fully with the least of these knowing that Jesus is willing to identify fully with us as the least of these. And from that life, we build a foundation on Jesus. Could it be said of us that we're living in such union with him that if someone rejects us, they're rejecting an expression of Jesus. Is that true of our lives? Do we have the humility in our hearts that we are called to live as the least of these, not look down on another class of people that need our help, but to fully identify with them? Jesus was rattling people when he taught this and he is rattling us it is the kind of teaching that ultimately propelled the plots to kill him. But if we are willing to unite with Jesus in his way in the world, we can take great comfort that he unites himself to us and he is moving us from that small, caged-off place of selfishness to a place of loving God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving our neighbor as ourself. And the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, the grace is present there. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. It is rattling, it is difficult, and it is also worth it, and it is also forever. Heavenly Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would help us, Holy Spirit. To know the ways that you are calling us away from a self-oriented life and into an others-oriented life, away from selfishness and into love. God, I I sit with my brothers and sisters under the weight of this word myself. I pray for the humility to identify with the least of these. I pray for the faith and courage to really entrust you with all the things that I hold on to for my own security. I felt the pressure and pain of that even this week we need your grace God would you help us to build our life on you would you help us to fully identify with you knowing that you fully identify with us may that gospel message change our hearts again this morning show us how to respond lead each each one here by your holy spirit in Jesus name amen